It's Monday, November 19th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill, and joining me in studio today for Motley Fool Pro and Options, Brian Hinman and Jeff Fisher. Happy Monday, guys. Hey, Chris. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. Yes, short week for us. This is this is it for the week of Thanksgiving. Get your fill. Get your fill. Just, <laughs> just be prepared to listen to this one a couple of times, because this is the only one we're doing this week. We will be back on Monday the 26th. Um, we're going to be doing a round of undervalued, overvalued. And the last time you guys were here, it was just about a month ago, we did undervalued, overvalued. The highest ratings ever, right? Um, well, certainly in terms of generating emails, it was <laughs> it was the highest rated ever, because Jeff thought it would be a great time to talk about options. I believe you're overvalued. Stock was actually a fifty dollars put option on Open Text. I can revisit it. If no, you like. no, it's you going don't, very well. You don't have to. But um, let me just share some of the email that we got from people uh, from Chris Ward. The options talk was great. I honestly stopped what I was doing to listen and nerd out. From yeah, Matt Holzman in you, Winter Chris. Park, Florida. I love the options lesson and will keep a copy of the October twenty fifth episode every time I need to reschool myself. From Jerry Kassebaum, I really enjoyed the options segment. Well done, Jeff Fisher. Options are not well understood, but they are interesting, fun, can be used to mitigate risk, and can be quite profitable. Wow, he's like singing straight out of the Jeff Fisher hymnal. He's speaking the truth. Um, And he goes on to write, uh, the fact that I did not fall asleep during the segment is some proof on the validity of the previous claim that it's a great topic and your show's thesis is about learning and investing. <laughs> very high standards. Very high standards. Um, and so those are all great. We got a bunch of emails that were had really positive reactions. I was, however, as the person sitting on the other side of the desk engaging in you, Jeff, with this conversation, I was very gratified that we got this email from Chris Graham in New Zealand. What on earth was Jeff Fisher talking about with the put options? Am I right that he was overvaluing a sell option? Therefore, in a roundabout way, he was actually undervaluing undervaluing the stock? I was so confused, I just about crashed my car. That's about right. That's about right. So it actually. I'm glad he didn't crash his car, though, certainly. Uh, I should point out that uh, Motley Fool Options, the service that Jeff runs, uh, is only open once or twice a year, and it's actually going to be opening soon. So for more information, if you like the options talk and you want to learn more, we have a free microsite that's been set up. It's just MotleyFoolOptionsWiz.com. That's MotleyFoolOptionsWiz, and Wiz is spelled W-H-I-Z. MotleyFoolOptionsWiz.com. Let's go to the undervalued stocks. And Brian Hinman, I'll start with you. What do you got out there in the stock world that looks undervalued? Well, I'm going to bring you a well-known name, Chris, that uh, I think is a great business at a pretty darn good price right now, and that's Costco. Okay. Uh, So business everyone is familiar with, but uh, it seems on sale a little bit. Costco is the seventh largest retailer in the world, uh, second largest in the U.S., um, it has an awesome business model. Uh, it does three things, basically. It's a loss leader in uh, products that we need every day, like gas and food. So it sells those products at no profit. Then it has a bunch of other fun treasure hunty style items that it sells at a very modest markup. Uh, those profits basically uh, cover the cost of running the business. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it charges a a uh, membership fee, an annual membership fee, which is right now at about fifty-five dollars, mm-hmm. uh, and people generally, genuinely love shopping there. It's got about six hundred locations worldwide, uh, and I think there's a lot of room for growth. Um, Costco grows by opening new warehouses, uh, by signing up new members, and uh, by increasing its wallet share. And I think it has the ability and has shown the propensity to do all three things. Are you a Costco member? I am not a Costco member. Jeff, are you? I am not. 
No. Okay, so that makes all three of us. So certainly there's room for growth right. there. Um, I want to push back on the stock a little bit because the, the stock is trading for around $95 a share right sure. now. A couple months ago, it hit an all-time high at, at uh, I think, about 104 That's That doesn't seem like an enormous drop-off. So, I mean, when you say this is a stock that's undervalued, is it only slightly undervalued, or uh, you know, how much room is there to run with a stock like Costco? Sure. So uh, today, shares are about ninety-five bucks, and I think they're worth around one hundred and ten. And it's important for our listeners to know that when we say a stock is fairly valued, that means that if you buy the stock at that price, you will earn. Uh, a fair return, a return that compensates you for the risk that you're going to take. Uh, in, 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 in most you know, blue chippy stocks, that's sort of around you know, 8, 9, 10%. So with Costco, you know, buying at 95, you're going to get that you know, appreciation from 95 to 110, what I think it's worth. Once it hits that 110, you know, you're sort of going to get that fair return, 8, 9, 10%. So, so it's, that's, not a bad, uh, that's not a bad return when you're buying a company as high quality as Costco. Jeff, any thoughts on Costco? You know, I only don't go there because we live in the city and we don't have much storage room. And so I just picture it as, and I told this to Costco's CEO, Mr. Senegal, when he was in The Fool. Oh, that's right. Yeah, he was here a couple years ago. Like, if he could relay to customers out there that you don't need to be a bulk purchaser to come and join and benefit from Costco. Because that's kind of my impression. I need to buy crates of things to make it worthwhile, and I'm sure that that isn't true. Yeah, I mean, uh, to, to, to go to that point, Jeff, Costco sold last year over $2 billion worth of TVs, $1.4 billion of wine, and 62 million rotisserie chickens. So it's clear that people are going there for more than just, you know, Crates that, of soup. Yeah, yeah. Crates, of, crates of soup or, or 600 rolls of toilet paper. That actually, sounds, that actually sounds like a pretty good night. Some wine, some, some chicken, and uh, <laughs> watch your flat screen. A, a night in the life of, of Chris Hill. Uh, I, you know, we, we had uh, Carl Quintanilla on the radio show uh, from CNBC, and he, he had done, they had done a documentary about, about Costco. Um, one of the things that I was really struck by was the quality control because we, and we've talked about this before, Jeff. Jim Senegal, longtime CEO, just stepped down at the beginning of the of the last year. I guess he stepped down in January, and Craig Jelinek took over. And they seem to have had no bumps in the road in terms of that transition, by the way. But Senegal really has put his imprint all over that company because. He is totally a stickler for details. He is a, a freak, and I say that in the best possible yep. sense mm-hmm. of the word, a freak about quality control. And when you look at their operations in terms of wine and how they buy wine and even the Kirkland brand toilet paper. Um, everything is measured to the umpteenth degree. Yep. They know where everything's moving, everything's coming from. And I think he's still working a bit, too. Remember he said – I can't give this up. I'll, well, be, I'll be looking at spreadsheets from home. Oh, yeah. He's still chairman of the board. So well, then I mean, he better still be working. <laughs> uh, Jeff, what is your undervalued stock? So we all remember, or let's revisit tech. The four okay. horsemen of tech in the 1990s were Microsoft, Intel, Cisco, and Dell. All right? Now, 10 years later, Intel's up about 10%. Microsoft's down a little bit. Cisco's up 40%. Dell is down 70%. So you may not want to be a four horsemen of tech, one of the four horsemen of tech. But they just came out with the four new ones this January. CNN did a survey of technology investors. The new four horsemen are Apple, Google, Amazon, and IBM. 
Now, in both cases, there's one very large software company missing, and that is my undervalued stock today, and that is Oracle. Now, I just named the four horsemen from 10 years ago and how they all have done not so well. Oracle, over the last 10 years, is up 215%. Wow. And it's worth about $145 billion, while IBM is $210 billion. And yet IBM is now one of the horsemen, and Oracle, again, falls by the wayside, not, not named. But I'm, I'm glad for that. I'm glad it's not so high profile. Uh, because maybe it means better returns remain to be ahead, just like in the past 10 years. So Oracle, ticker O-R-C-L, is the leading database management software provider in the world, selling uh, database software to to companies all around the world. But uh, 75% of their new revenue is from database and middleware, both of which are very important to a company. Your, Your data has to be secure, has to be reliable. So that's a very sticky business. And people, companies have shown over the years that they're very reluctant to switch from their database provider. So that's a great sticky business for Oracle. And now they're moving into cloud full stream ahead. They've been developing their cloud fusion software, it's called, mm-hmm. for the past seven years. And now it's rolling out and selling very well. The, the company offers all three tiers of cloud computing, which are software as a service, platform as a service, and infrastructure as a service. And for those who may not know, cloud is basically just all your services are kept off-site uh, on someone else's server, basically. But a lot of companies find they want to keep key data or or have it on-site as well, okay. secure. So Oracle offers you the chance to do both or either or different combinations at the same time. New license revenue should grow around 10 12% this year, and earnings per share on tap to grow around 12 13%, and shares trade at about 11 times free cash flow, I think it remains a value. Uh, I, I want to get back to the stock in a second, but you, you raise an interesting point when you talk about sort of the, the, this whole notion of the four horsemen. And I think it's probably easy for people to wrap their head around consumer tech companies a lot more so than a company like Oracle, where you know it's Amazon, you're probably familiar with the website, or Apple with the products. Um, yeah, and, and Google. And, uh, yeah. You know, Oracle seems like one of those things that uh, it's uh, obviously it's a it's a tech company I know a little bit about, but I would never really think about it on, on a consumer level. It's the sort of thing where if I went up to the fifth floor and started talking to some of the guys in our tech department, they would probably have something to say. And and what I was thinking when you were talking about that was uh, was a company like LinkedIn. Because LinkedIn, and we've talked about this before, LinkedIn is one of those companies that, you know, maybe you're on the website, maybe you're a LinkedIn member, uh, or maybe you're just someone who just thinks, ah, I get those annoying emails from them, and I, I you know, it's it's just filling up my inbox, and I don't right. really care about it. But if you go and talk to, at our company, it's someone like Kara Chambers in our HR department who will sing the praises of LinkedIn and, by the way, talk about what we spend as a company, mm-hmm. then you realize, oh, okay, there's the value proposition for, for a business like LinkedIn. And I think it's the same sort of thing. You know, when, you, when you think about switching costs, it's like, well, what does it cost for someone to, as a consumer to switch shopping on Amazon.com versus Walmart's website or Best Buy's? Well, there's no switching costs there. Mm-hmm. But you talk to a tech department about switching from Oracle to an entirely different Right. System or a ty- an entirely different tech company. That's a you know when, when it comes to stickiness, that seems yeah. like an enormous advantage. It's nerve wracking. You don't want to lose data or have it insecure. Yeah, it's a giant advantage. And what what you just made me think of, Chris, is the full community because you do get all these different perspectives there. The that, online that you community. wouldn't get uh, online. The online community on the boards other, that we wouldn't know otherwise, and unless we go upstairs and talk to the tech department. Or I, I talk to my brother who works in France at France Telecom in their 
internet tech department. I have another brother in Chicago who works in a networking company. Mm -hmm. So I talk to them frequently because they have their finger on the pulse of everything, whether it's, well, everything that's in my universe, whether it's Riverbed Technology, Oracle, Workday, uh, all, 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 all kinds of tech companies. Let's go back to the stock for a second. Just like uh, Brian was talking about with Costco, uh, shares of Oracle, they're basically trading around $30 a share. A couple mm-hmm. of months ago, it was 33 That was That was the high for the year. So again, how much value is there in this stock? Because it's not a huge drop from 33 to 30 No, and I think it's fairly valued around the mid-30s. And I think there's chance for 10, 12% annualized returns uh, for the the next three to five years, which is about as far as you can look forward with any sort of reasonable approach. Jeff, you said CNN did, did this four yeah. horsemen study. What are they thinking? Why does anyone provoke Larry Ellison like this? Don't they know that he is just going to wage war? Like in in his spare time, he will now say. he will now start a cable news network, and w- whose sole purpose is to squash CNN. I, I know say, he does loathe IBM. When, when you did talk about Oracle being under the radar, I did think, well, it's under the radar unless you count their CEO Larry Ellison, who is. A billionaire and is uh, very much uh, someone in the certainly in the business media eye. And you know what's funny, Chris? When Pro bought, so Pro Motley Fool Pro owns shares of Oracle since I think 2009. When we bought the shares, we were the first Motley Fool service to do so. Really, first newsletter, first service. Yeah, I was surprised. And again, I like it. Are you going to be? Getting, <laughs> maybe you'll be getting a little holiday card from Larry Ellison. That would be nice. <laughs> Plated in gold. <laughs> let's uh, let's move over to the overvalued stocks. Brian Hinman, what do you got? Sure. So Costco was a great company at a good good price. Uh, I'm going to give you a good company at a bad price. So this isn't necessarily one you want to bet against, um, but I certainly wouldn't want to buy it now. And it's a company called Church and Dwight, uh, which and the ticker. Uh, it is CHD. Okay. Listeners are probably very familiar with the company's products, but not necessarily familiar with the company itself. It is a small consumer packages company, uh, so it competes with some behemoths like Unilever, Procter & Gamble, Colgate. Uh, but their products, uh, they distribute in 115 companies best known for Arm & Hammer, uh, OxyClean, Kaboom, Nair, Trojan, uh, Extra, and Origel. Um, they actually have more than 80 brands, but only eight make up the 80% or so of their sales. Um, the company is 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 good because it has a, a nice balance of what they call premium brands and sort of deep discount value brands. Anyway, um, I think there's something really interesting that's gone on in the past couple of years. And with the recession, many people traded down. And so they traded down from a name brand product to a store brand product. Um, at the same time, retailers got really smart and they, they invested a lot in their store brands and they have really built some trust and goodwill in those store brand names. Really quick, let's do an experiment. I'm going to uh, name a store brand and you tell me the retailer. Okay. Okay, great, great value. Uh, what? Don't Super know. value? Oh my gosh, you're killing me here. Great value? Great value is Walmart. Oh, okay. I, okay. All right. Yeah. Do you understand how to play the game now? Not really. Well, your instructions weren't very <laughs> okay, clear. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, Kirkland's. That's Costco's. Uh, okay, Archer Farms. Don't know. Target. You guys are killing me. Sorry. <laughs> I do not think you are representative of the masses. <laughs> or my investment thesis completely we just said fell we're not apart. Costco subscribers, so maybe that's <laughs> Ironically, that's the only one I knew. <laughs> okay, so 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 the point, although it may it may have totally just fallen apart, 
is that uh, these store brands are have really increased their quality recently. They've really increased their brand image. Uh, and as the economy has recovered, um, consumers have been really slow to trade back up okay. to branded products. And so what that is translating to is it's translating, it's translating to um, branded product owners like Procter & Gamble and Church and & Dwight to have to spend a ton on marketing to try and drive sales again. You know what, uh, Brian? I think that major point, because I didn't realize they were store brands, you know, the, it's, it's a brand. Hallelujah. Yep. <laughs> Um, Let me go back to something you said earlier, which was this whole notion that they've got uh, all of these products, you know, 80 plus products, and most of their revenue is just coming from, you know, single digits. Yep. Um, We've seen over the past couple of years Procter & Gamble employ a pretty methodical strategy of shedding some of their brands to get more focused as a business. And regardless of the industry, that's something as an investor I I applaud. I like to see that. I like to see that in the companies that uh, I own shares in. And when I see them uh, sort of straying from that, it makes me a little nervous. Church and Dwight, if you know, you're saying it's overvalued, but if you start to see, or if listeners start to see over the next couple of years, Church and Dwight coming out with a series of announcements that they are in fact shedding some of these brands that aren't making them money or are far lower margin, is that going to be a more bullish signal for you? Well, it could it could be. You remember because uh, the importance of advertising in these uh, these types of companies. If you have so many brands and many of them aren't contributing that much to sales and profits, well then. And your willingness to support them with advertising dollars you know, should should fall in line with that. So shedding them sheds the need to support them with advertising dollars. So so that could be uh, you know the type of thing that would that would turn my opinion on the stock for sure. Okay, Jeff, what do you got for an overvalued stock? All right, first I want to say thank you to everyone who sent in emails about options <laughs> from last month's episode because here we go again. It is not an option though, but it's it is an ETF and it's a short ETF. I believe shares of ProShares Ultra Short Real Estate, the ticker is SRS, are uh, worthy of shorting, okay. which makes it basically a long, you're short, a short. But let's let's talk about so it. So this is an extreme. Whenever you listen to Jeff Fisher, you must stand on your head. <laughs> Our friend in New Zealand should have been in much better shape to understand what's going on. I just hope he's not driving his car right now. Um, so... So this ETF holds about 80 companies. They're all U.S. real estate-based companies. And right now we know vacancy rates are falling, uh, rental rates are going up, and sales prices are increasing. So it's not a time that I want to be short U.S. real estate, let alone ultra-short real estate, which this ETF is. It's two times short this index of 80-some companies that include anything from Simon Property Group. I was going to say, to, if you're if you're shorting, if it's 2007, 2008, and you start to short real estate, that's probably a great time to do that. But now, when you, you basically can't turn on the TV or look at news online or open the business section of a newspaper without seeing something regarding, quote-unquote, the housing rebound, um, yeah, probably a bad time to be shorting real estate. Exactly. And, and Chris, the amazing thing is, even in 2008 and 2009, this ETF, which is short real estate, lost money. <laughs> How did be- they manage that? Because they use, to be ultra short, they use futures and swaps, and they, they it's synthetically short, so it isn't truly short. It's not a true inverse of the index. Okay. They try to mirror it using derivatives, and the daily erosion eats into the returns. And the other thing is, as with all these ultra ETFs, they try to match the return day by day, not over the long term. So your losses compound 
more strongly on a day-by-day basis than they otherwise should. So let's talk about the underlying index, which trades at only about two times book value, yields 4%, and and uh, this ETF has an expense ratio of 1% too. So you have uh, all those numbers work in your favor shorting this, this ETF. But uh, the bottom line is I think I'd rather be long real estate. So if there's an ultra-short real estate ETF, I want to short that ETF. And in this case, that makes you two times long real estate. And you have all, all the other advantages of this flawed ETF, which is it has fees. It doesn't track the way it's supposed to. It lost money even in 2008, 2009. Now, which means- Who are the which, geniuses who came up with this? Because which, when you were explaining <laughs> all this, just a minute ago when you were explaining this, I just imagined the, the guys who came up with this pitching this idea to their boss- and and clearly they got the green light, but at some point it would be great if you could go back and see that actually someone stood up and said, "What in the hell are you talking Chris, about? This exactly. sounds horrible. This, this is this, angering you, right?" This but this, is the, the, yeah, this is the ETF industry in a nutshell. Yep. Whenever they're ultra or, or or leveraged ETFs, they don't perform as they're expected to. Yeah, they are vehicles that are designed that the way they're designed, they eat themselves. They eat their own value over time naturally. And so what you see happen with these is they they erode their own value the longer they exist. Ultimately, they get to a point where they look untenable. And so what happens is they do reverse share splits. It's uh, a gift that keeps giving. Yeah, <laughs> to, to get the price back up so that they can continue this sort of slow erosion yeah, over time. I've, I've been short some flawed ETFs since 2009 now. Uh, when yeah, they this really is really a, a widely underreported story. It's a big sham, really. I was and just going to say, this sounds like it's one step away from a Ponzi scheme. Yeah, well, <laughs> well, and so ProShares put this one out, but every ETF company puts out ultra ETFs because there is demand for it. This one only has about $140 million in assets now. So it has people are getting wise to the fact that it's not a good place to invest. That has made it hard to short. We have a, a short setup with options in Pro on this ETF. And I just checked this morning, and Interactive Brokers did have, according to them this morning, 500 shares available for shorting, if you wanted to short it directly. And uh, But TD Ameritrade had no shares, and they never have shares. So it, it can be tricky to get shares to short. But members or, or listeners should know, if you do short, remember it's ultra. It's a two-time leverage. So if you want to be short 2% of it in your, in your portfolio, only short 1%, and you have the 2% exposure. Yeah, it's... And it's worth it's worth saying that these uh, instruments are not inherently bad. They are just designed to mimic one day movements, yeah, or, or, or be you know twice a one day movement. But any any period outside of one day, these things are horrible investments. Exactly. So it's a sweet way for fools who have a long term perspective to take advantage of all these short term vehicles that the market's putting out there because so many people are day traders now. Yeah. So if you're trading this for a day or two, like Brian says, it may work. We would never recommend it. But if you want to just be short it for years, you have erosion going in your favor year after year. I mean, this thing's been down every year since it came out, except for 2007 when it first yeah, came out. That's good to if hear. Real, if you're a real estate ETF short and you can't make money in 2008, you have problems. That's good to hear because in most cases, erosion doesn't work in your favor. <laughs> whatever the uh, whatever the topic is, it, it just doesn't. And once again, if you want to check out the free microsite for more information on Motley Fool Options, which is uh, opening for uh, just the, the first time in a while, and it won't be open again for at least another six months or so, MotleyFoolOptionsWiz.com.
just to wrap up, since it is Thanksgiving week, what is your go-to Thanksgiving food? What is your like your one thing that you're always looking forward to when it comes to Thanksgiving? Brian, I know it's something healthy, so I'll, I'll, I won't start with <laughs> you. Uh, I, Jeff. I can't believe you're making me go here, but I have to. It, 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 and apologies to my mother because she never made it, never insisted on it. But at some point, pigs in a blanket made their way into <laughs> our Thanksgiving appetizer wow. regime. And and you're a fan. I know it's I, I know it's you know James Early would be gagging right now. They're so unhealthy, but uh, they're fun. Just, they're fun to make. Hey, one one day out of the year, why you not? You can get veggie one. Can, can you just see the pilgrims and Native Americans <laughs> sitting down for some pigs in a blanket? <laughs> you know what? They would have loved pigs in a blanket. They would have welcomed them. I don't know what was served at that first Thanksgiving, but it wasn't anything as good as pigs in a blanket. Chris, sweet potatoes are awesome. Yes. They are awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, made correctly, you can make them taste like cake. Uh, for whatever reason, they seem to be way more popular around Thanksgiving time. So I am happy that the rest of the world gets to enjoy sweet potatoes on this day as much as I do 365 days a year. And what is your preferred way on Thanksgiving to enjoy sweet potatoes? Mm, I, I enjoy them when they are made into a dessert of sorts. <laughs> Everything's better. I won't. Be, I won't. Yeah, I'm, I'm not. I'm not picky. I, I'm experimental with them. They're they're fantastic. Brian Hinman, Jeff Fisher, guys, happy Thanksgiving. You too, Chris. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. Our producer is Matt Career. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We will see you next Monday, the 26th of November. Yeah.